May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, the one who is our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So in 2001, there's a filmmaker by the name of Baz Luhrmann who I learned has a penchant for opera, which explains the film that he made in 2001 entitled Moulin Rouge. Maybe you've seen it, maybe you've heard about it. There's obviously other versions of it. It takes place in Paris in the 1900s. It is a story about a collision between the elites and the bohemians and the rabble of that metropolitan city. One of the leads in the film, played by Nicole Kidman, is a character named Satine. She is, as they will put it, a courtesan, an expensive escort. She's a a woman who is sort of trapped in that world, but it's allowed her to survive, and yet she has dreams. Dreams that always seem a little bit elusive to her. And she's met by a young, hapless, um, talented, but as yet undiscovered poet, a writer. He's played by Obi-Wan Kenobi. Um, his, Ewan McGregor. He, uh, the, his, his character is not ironically named Christian. And as soon as he sees Satine dance and sing, he is taken by her, and through a friend, he arranges uh, a meeting with her. And through a moment of great mistaken identity, she she comes to think that he is one of her high-dollar customers, and so she begins to turn on the whole contrived, sensual act, and he kind of looks at her funny, and then he begins to sing to her. And he says, and he sings, and if you know it, My gift is my song, and this one's for you. You can tell everybody, come on, this is your song. It might be quite simple, but now that it's done, I hope you don't mind, I hope you don't mind that I put down in words. Stop there. (laughs) He sings that song, and she's kind of, all of a sudden, changed. Because he's taken by her in a loving, unobjectifying almost sympathetic way, and that song, for all of its poignancy and its a little bit of comedic value to it, it is really, I would say, a song to answer her shame. And she has it. And you might even say the whole, one, one large subplot of the whole movie is an answer to somebody's shame. And that is a story we can relate to. We know what shame is. We are hounded by it or haunted of it. We, we do our best to either evade it or uproot it, and we feel ourselves powerless to do so. We get that. There are all sorts of things that you and I are terrified to share, and those things often fall under the broad category of something that we are shamed about. And that is a truth as ancient as Eden uh, we read Genesis, and sometimes maybe we look at it and we go, all these talk of days and fruit and trees and snake, and we go, this is language from another world. But when it starts to talk, talk about this couple as naked and unashamed, and then later naked and ashamed, tell me that it doesn't get us. We know what shame is. And we kind of don't know what to do with it. Isaiah is the book we've been listening to for several weeks and will continue to listen to for another several weeks more. And in this text that we're going to look at today is a song 
another song by a servant. And it comes right on the heels of a song from last week. That song was pretty much a song about the servant. You might say that this song is by the servant. And this song has everything to do with responding to shame. And so we're going to listen to that song. We're going to consider its answer to shame. And we're going to realize that it has three things for us when we're talking about shame. It's going to be a song about the sources of shame. It's also going to be a song about the hope for shame. And lastly, it's going to be a song about a precise answer to shame. The sources of it, the hope for it, a precise answer to it. It might be quite simple, but now that it's done, here we go. So if you're able, we're in Isaiah chapter 54. If you can stand, I wonder if you would. Isaiah 54, starting in verse 1. Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing. Cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent. Let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords. Strengthen your stakes. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left. And your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. Fear not. For you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood, and you will remember no more. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth, he is called. For the Lord has called you. Like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit. Like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you. But with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you. But with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. This is like the days of Noah to me. As I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you. My covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. This is the song of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Every song has an occasion that wrote it. Every song has an inspiration that is behind it. And this song has a historical context that provoked it. And as we've reviewed every week, Isaiah and those who are part of his cohort wrote in a long season in Israel's history in which the nation that was once one and united was then divided into north and to south, full of antagonism between one another, the northern kingdom referred to as Israel, has been overtaken by the Assyrian Empire and exiled. 150 years later, the southern kingdom known as Judah, to which Isaiah is writing and speaking specifically, that nation is overtaken by Babylon and carted off and exiled back to that imperialist nature. Everything that they knew that was stable and steady was taken. 
Everything they knew that was familiar and friendly was ripped from them, torn asunder, and they are sent into exile. And both Isaiah and Jeremiah and those prophets like them all had to say to Israel, look, this was not random. It is not for no reason that you find yourself having everything despoiled of you and pillaged. That is their hard word. And they are in exile. But this song, by the time we get to chapter 54, it is a song that arises from an end to that exile. And now Judah is making its slow walk back to the land it once knew with hope. But eventually with the realization that what they've lost, much of it will not be recoverable. And here in verse 4, you hear of the undercurrent of shame in this people when twice you hear the word shame spoken of in verse 4. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced, for you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more. What is the the source of their shame? You heard it spoken of one, sort of the, the language of marriage and motherhood is sort of the metaphor in which he's out to convey what it is that they're suffering from in the way of shame, but also how God is responding to it. They are like a wife abandoned by a husband. They are like a mother who is barren. And in an ancient world, when everything was riding on whether you had an heir, and in an Israelite community in which the very covenant that God had made with that people was in some ways premised on the idea that their descendants would be as numerous as the stars of the sky, the grains of sand on the beaches. When you hear that, unfortunately, some would make the sorrowful deduction that if they were barren, if they were unable to conceive, then they were cursed. And you had people like Job's friends who would come and speak to him and in the middle of his loss would begin to wonder, well, what did you do? And in that day, perhaps those who would out, without children would say, what did I do? They were powerless to overturn their circumstances. And so they felt sorrow, but maybe they also felt shame. And this was a source of shame that was beyond their control. And that is an idea that you and I can relate to. You and I know a source of shame that was unsolicited and unbidden and unchosen, and yet there's nothing we can do about it. Somebody had said something to you over and over and over again, and you walk with shame. Somebody did something to you, and maybe it was only one time, and you are forever changed. Sometimes some, something was done in your midst and you can't unsee it. You can't unhear it. You can't remove that selectively from your memory. It's just there and then the whole life is seen in a different light. And you dare not speak of it because it is too painful and it is so woven into your story and you can do nothing about it. That is what it means to be haunted and hounded by shame and you had nothing to do about it. If you're a young Israelite returning with your parents and your family from exile, you know something about sorrow. But maybe you also walk with a little bit of shame only because of the errors of your forebears. 
And so you understand a source of shame in which you had no control over it. And, and surely this text speaks of that sort of experience. But there is another source of shame that it speaks of that we also have to reckon with. To be sure, there are moments where we walk with shame because of things done unto us, but there is also a moment in which there is a source of shame that we walked headlong into with our eyes wide open. And so you hear again in the text of the Lord portraying himself as a husband who deserts the wife who is Israel. But he doesn't desert her because he's found a better wife, because he's looking for a better wife. This desertion is more one like an exasperated frustration. I don't know what to do with you. And so I step away. I give you what you want. This desertion is spoken of with great clarity there in verse 7 and 8. For a brief moment, I deserted you. In overflowing anger, for a moment, I hid my face from you. Deserted, angry, hiding of the face. It's all metaphorical language for what it would have been to be an Israelite experiencing exile. Maybe he's forgotten us. Maybe he's given up on us. And what Isaiah is out to tell us is, no, 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 no. This is not giving you up. This is giving you over unto what you've sought. This is not a punishment for what you've done. This is the holy jealousy that God speaks of often of himself, as he does in Deuteronomy 32 and elsewhere. For they have made me jealous with what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. It is a jealousy. We always have to be careful when we use language to ascribe to God because Most of the time, we don't know words other than from our own experience of it. And anybody that's ever been jealous before, it is the consequence of feeling insecure. God is never insecure. God is never feeling hurt or upset or demure because of the way anybody has treated him. But the closest thing that he might disclose of himself to communicate his sorrow over what is befalling those who would cast him off, is jealousy. I want you back. But I want you back because you need me, and you just don't know it. This is not a punishment. This is a holy jealousy. This, is, this was Isaiah warning Israel and Judah of what they were doing, and them ignoring them, and then God allowing them to go into exile. But not to forget them, only to chasten them. And that's why it sounds rather familiar to what you hear in Psalm 81. My people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. So what? So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own. In that famous parable in Luke chapter 15 that Jesus himself says of two sons, the first son, he's younger, he thinks he knows he can find his own way, and so he says to his father, I want my inheritance now, even before you're dead, I'm going to go. And what does the father do? Okay. I concede, you can go. I will give you over to your own designs until you discover your own folly, until you walk headlong into what later you will be full of shame for. Beloved, you and I know about shame that has come upon us because of other people's words or actions, but you and I also know what it is to have walked into shame almost as if we were ready to embrace it. And when we go there, even if we regret it, we don't know how to leave it behind. 
we don't know how to cast it off except to try to ignore it or to try to medicate it or to try to compensate for anything that we might do that might somehow in our arbitrary ledger balance sort of overweigh or um, outweigh anything that we might have done. We don't know what to do with it. And we know the sources of that shame. Fortunately, this song from this servant is not only about the sources of shame. It is also about a hope for it. This is the second thing he wants to tell us. When in Moulin Rouge, um, Christian seeks to begin to win the heart of Satine, at first she puts up all sorts of defenses and excuses, like this will never work. She, she says, look, I've got to survive. Girl's got to make money. I, I don't have time for love. I'm not going to go there. And, and then she says, look, even if I made myself vulnerable before you, in time you would despise me. I would end up drinking all the time. It's worthless. Stop. And he, and he just sings to her some more. He just keeps singing to her. Not because the song is of any merit, not because the words, as beautiful and poetic as they might be, are the source or the hope for her, the end to her shame. His song is himself. He is his song. He is inserting himself into her world and introducing himself through the music. This is a song from the servant in Isaiah in which he is saying, I will sing to you, but I, this servant... This Lord, this is your song, and this is your hope for your shame. The hope for our shame is more than just a change of circumstances. The hope for our shame that Isaiah is out to tell us is the Lord himself, and nothing less. Not just notions, him. And therefore, what he does is out to eclipse our shame by giving us himself, and in one verse... God discloses himself and his character in a number of words that go by so fast, but we have to sort of unpack them slowly if we are to find the hope for our shame. In verse 5, you hear him say, For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. In one verse, almost six different characterizations of God himself. Each one of them out to communicate to us what is our hope and what is the path out of our shame? Take him really, take him really briefly, but, but carefully. When, he, when God speaks of himself as a maker, it's the word there, bara, it's a word that only God is able to use. No one else is a maker, only he is a maker. And therefore, what this is talking about here is God as an origin, as a foundation for us. Why, why should that matter when it comes to you thinking about your shame? Because I take it on good authority that when you are in the midst of the feeling of shame, what you feel like is a detachment from all things that are good. A detachment from anything that might lovingly lay claim to you. You feel in the dark, all alone, with a door locked behind you from the outside. That's shame. C.S. Lewis says, I sometimes think that shame, mere awkward, senseless shame, does as much towards preventing good acts as straightforward happiness as any of our vices can do. It's that powerful. When God reminds us that he is our maker, he is saying you belong to him simply by virtue of the fact that you were made in his image. You were made by him. And that is an answer, or rather part of the hope for our shame. He is the source he is the maker. He is the foundation. And somehow that begins to reconnect us to something that is larger than ourselves, something that perhaps challenges our sense that we are detached and isolated. 
But consider also the way God characterizes himself in the word of Lord of hosts. That is literally translated as a one who is a commander of armies. He manifests strength. He's undaunted by challenge. That is what it means to believe that God is one who is the Lord of hosts. There is in him strength. And when it comes to our shame, the experience of shame, the the psychological, emotional experience of shame is that of a weight. Not only of isolation, but of a weight. A weight that is too heavy to carry, too heavy to throw off, too much to bear. And therefore, there has to be something stronger than the inner or outer experience of whatever it is that we carry that we're too terrified to name or to speak of or to confess or to reveal. And therefore, we're going to need something that is stronger than our shame to displace it. And when God says that he is the Lord of hosts, he is speaking of a strength there to subdue and supplant it. But in a particular way of strength, a strength of will, a strength of commitment. And you hear that idea communicated when God refers to himself as a redeemer. Typically you hear of redeemer as one who pays a debt. The word there for redeemer is the Hebrew word goel. If you were here with us last Advent around Christmas time, we listened to the book of Ruth. Ruth is a Moabite woman. She marries into an Israelite family. Her husband dies. She and her, all, her widowed mother-in-law named Naomi make their way back to Bethlehem. And Ruth has already three strikes against her. She's a woman, she's a widow, and she's a foreigner in that day. Three strikes in that day. And yet she is a servant with strength and fortitude and courage and initiative. And as the story unfolds, this Ruth, who took it upon herself to be a servant at her own risk, at great cost to herself... At great danger to herself, she is met by this one named Boaz. And Boaz, we come to learn, is a distant relative of this family, but one who we soon thereafter discover is what was known in that day as a kinsman redeemer, a goel. And in the book of Ruth, the beautifully short book of Ruth, Boaz has the opportunity, if not the obligation, to come to their aid. And so he does. But he doesn't simply write a check. He doesn't simply set up a trust fund. He he doesn't simply buy a piece of land. He takes her to himself. He gives of himself fully unto her. And therefore, just as Boaz was a redeemer for Ruth, so Isaiah is saying that the Lord, the one who is God, is a redeemer for Israel. He is not selective about his assistance. He is not simply one that pays a debt that departs. He is the one that takes you on fully in yourself, in your fullness. And when we have Boaz in the back of our mind and understanding what a redeemer is, what does Boaz finally do? He marries Ruth. He makes her his wife. And through her, an heir comes. An heir, which we eventually find out to be the forebear of King David. And as one who marries, who provides, who demonstrates love, that gets us to the last characterization of the Lord here in Isaiah 54. He is your husband. He is the one in using the language of marriage to declare that he will be 
in a pledge of faithfulness, and he will be the hope for their shame, not because he simply helps and then leaves, but because he will be present faithfully forever. That's his promise. Why does that matter? Uh, I bet a lot of you in this room know the name Brene Brown. She's a sociologist at the University of Houston, and she has you might say, had a meteoric rise in the last 10 years. She speaks to uh, packed audiences, and she speaks with golden insight. If you, can, if you can go on YouTube sometime and type in Brene Brown blame, there's a wonderful little five-minute excerpt from one of her talks that is just golden. And if you can go out and find it, maybe one day I'll share with you uh, what she learned from Jesus about mourning. It's just profound. But the one thing that she is most known for these days is how she speaks to people's shame. And in a TED Talk that has no fewer than 44 million views, she speaks how the way out of shame is to be vulnerable. The last thing you would think would be the solution to your shame, to disclose what you are ashamed about. She says that is your hope of getting out of your shame. It is to be supremely honest about your weakness. Why does Brene Brown say that that's the way out. But more importantly, how do you find the courage to be vulnerable, to confront your shame in that way? It comes down to, she says, about what you believe about yourself. And in that TED Talk, she said this. The most important thing is to believe that we're enough. Because when we work from a place, I believe that says I'm enough, Then we stop screaming and start listening. We're kinder and gentler to the people around us. And we're kinder and gentler to ourselves. That'll preach. And 44 million hits speaks to that. But notwithstanding the golden insights that come from Brene Brown, when I hear that, I am forced with a choice. Do I listen to myself that I am enough or do I, need from the word, do I need a word from the outside? Because when I try to tell myself, you know, you're enough, just believe it. I'm not very convincing. My credibility, my persuasiveness, it is not enough to shout down all the other voices that say, you know, it's, it's really not even close. I need a word from the outside. And you know what? Brene Brown believes that too. Because why is 44 million people listening to that TED Talk? Because they're getting a word from the outside from Brene Brown. If you can just tell yourself in the middle of your quiet room and that's enough for you, boy, I salute you. I need a word from the outside. And I think Isaiah is arguing that you do too. And that's why we need an answer for our shame. That's why we need a word for our shame. That's why we need someone to intervene in our world. Because my voice is not strong enough to convince me that I am enough. And that, my friends, is the deepest problem with shame. Uh, We have referred to Kurt Thompson before in here. He's written a couple of books on shame. And his argument to us all, based upon what Scripture tells us, is it doesn't matter what you're telling yourself. It matters what you believe about what story you're in. And Isaiah is out to tell us that if you're in the Lord, you're in a story and that there is an answer to your shame. In Genesis 2, 
which we raised at the beginning of this sermon. It speaks of Adam and Eve as those who were naked and unashamed. Fully exposed, fully vulnerable, but without fear. And what happens? They come to be convinced that God is not enough. They can do better. And therefore they eat of that fruit, that bizarre, weird fruit. And when that happens, what happens? It says they became naked and ashamed. Suddenly, at first believing that God was not enough, now they start to believe that they are not enough and there's nothing they can do about it. And what does God do? Well, obviously he washes his hands of them. No. He comes searching for them. He asks questions of them. He will not settle for their high-handed false belief that they'll be fine without him. He goes after them. And Isaiah 54 is out to tell us that God has come for us as he's come for Israel. And therefore, in that coming for us, he has come to give us an answer to our shame. God is not simply offering himself as a presence, as potent as that would be. He's out to give us a word from the outside. And before he tells us why, before he tells us what the answer to that shame is, he's first of all out to tell us what we're going to do with it when we hear it. And the first thing we're going to do is going to sing. Now you and I sing for lots of reasons. We sing in the shower. We sing in sermons. We sing... We sing because the song is nice, but sometimes something is stirred in our soul that leads us to sing. And he is out to tell us that we will sing that you barren one, the one you thought that your dreams were all going to be unfulfilled, where you thought that all, much, all that you had lost, that you will always walk the earth with this deep sense of emptiness. There is something on the other side of this message, something on the other side of this answer to your shame that will allow you to sing even. And not just sing. It will allow you to settle in and and spread out. Obviously, the historical context is of Israel walking back into the land that was ripped from them. It's all changed, but now they can put down tent stakes and they can drive those stakes in deep. They can take rest. This is going to be home. And not only can they drive in tent stakes and sort of settle in, they can actually enlarge those stakes. They can believe that their tent is going to become larger and they're going to finally recover what was originally told of them. You will be a people that will bless all the peoples of the earth. Your new stability is now going to be a source of stability for anybody that comes looking for refuge in this Lord. That's your truth. Sing, man. Settle down and rest. Why? Why are they able to do that? Why are they able to spread out and sing? You hear it in verse 10. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you. My covenant of peace shall not be removed. They are saying, no sooner will the mountains you see outside this building move then you will see my steadfast love move. Where it lands, there it stays. That is the truth of it. 
That is the covenant of peace he strikes. And why would he do that? Is it because Israel really impressed him with their accomplishments? No. Is it because Israel was really full of beauty, both outwardly and inwardly? Hardly. Was it because that they had manifested all this virtue and finally, I will bring you to myself? No. Why would God promise a steadfast love that would not depart any faster than a mountain might be moved. It's what you hear in verses 7 and 8 and 10. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you. My covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who what? Had compassion on you. What's that? That's the gospel. It's not for what they did. It's not for who they are. It's for who he is to them. That's called grace. That's called love. And when Satine finally melts under the weight of Christian's attempts to prove to her that his love is real, he sings her this song. Such a perfect place. My dear, a little frog. Suddenly it moves with such a perfect grace. <laughs> Suddenly my life doesn't seem such a waste. It all revolves around you. And there's no mountains too high. No shows to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3 what Isaiah is out to tell us about the Lord in Isaiah 54 is precisely what Jesus comes to say to us at that cross come what may I will love you he pitched his tent among us and sought to enlarge that tent by calling people who were not part of his flock to become part of one flock this Jesus is the one who came to this earth to come for a bride, to make a bride his own, to strike a covenant of peace whereby humanity would be reconciled to the Father and he would do all of that, all of that by allowing himself to enter into the ultimate form of exile, the ultimate form of abandonment. He did that to say to you and to me, come what may. I'm there. That's the truth. That's the gospel. That's the answer to your shame. Friends, I ask you this question. Where do you take your shame? 
What do you do with it? You do something with it. What do you do with it? Whether it was done to you or whether you did it yourself, where do you take your shame? You want to start a great dinner party conversation? Ask everybody around the room, what do you do with your shame? You might just enlarge the tent through asking that question. This is his answer to us. This is where we find our rest. This is where we might find the courage to love again. I'm going to give you a minute to be quiet and simmer on this or anything else that might be confusing or afflicting you. And then I'll pray. Father, above all things, we ask one thing. To help us believe that in your Son, not only our guilt, but that our shame is covered. Oh, free us from it. That we might walk in life. In Jesus' name, amen.